Welcome everyone to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas, joined, of course, as always, by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. Who is looking at his phone instead of podcasting. I am, I am, I'm, po- I'm phone casting, phone podcasting. <laughs> no, no, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, right. So how are you this fine day? I see that uh, autumn is creeping onto us and the the first first little wisps of winter can be felt, I think, in the air. Dude, I really enjoy that. I also, Autumn is the best season. Yeah, it's it's my favorite. The, the, the endless autumn. Joburg has such a long autumn. Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we do have proper little winter snaps, but they come pretty late usually. And I suppose weather-wise... I I was having this discussion with a friend because uh, we've got CNN in the in the main living room, so that's become a, a real part of my life. My condolences. And there's l- lots of news about like early blossoms in Japan and parts of America, and blaming. Oh yes, I saw climate that. change because of course Japan Japan has uh records of when the cherry blossoms blossom in in what's it kyoto or tokyo or somewhere one of the big cities yeah um going back into like the 800s and they said that i think this was the earliest since they started keeping those records that the cherry blossoms have bloomed is that right that is the claim and that is pretty uh that's pretty far out they don't say by how much like i think it's actually only a couple of days over if you look over that whole 800 year period so it just it just it's the kind of thing that my princeton education um has (laughs) has made me very wary of because we studied i you know i took a class liberal arts degree so you take lots of classes and everything uh took a semester in um the class was called natural disasters uh right and you know, two professors, uh, I think it's fair to say that they were tree huggers. Their favorite thing to do was to go to Iceland and sort of look at the ice melt and, and weep and see the volcanoes. You know, they really were... experienced the beauty of nature. Yeah, they were, but they were, so they were seriously, serious scientists, um, seriously worried about climate change, seriously worried about anthropogenic climate change. Um, right. And at the same time, seriously... Uh, irritated by confusing noise for sound and using single data points to sort of uh, describe a trend. And uh, so I don't know. It just, it just, it just kind of irks me that every weather event that's unusual. Well, look, I I think, I think it's as as fitting a pattern when they don't actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree, and I think you know this is we're not anywhere close to the first people to say this, but there's I think a view abroad that is probably correct that the media in general is pretty bad at reporting anything science-wise, and we've seen that I think quite a lot during COVID as well. There's been just sort of you know like the reinfection stories. There's been a couple of those that were written in the most ridiculous way um, imaginable. Man gets infected with COVID again, and then it was always like. Drama, drama, drama. But when you actually read through the story and then read the paper behind the story, it turns out to be a complete non-event. Yeah, it's a one in a million thing, and he's not, you know. 
Right. Uh, how many British Medical Journal had it? I mean, we talked about this before. BM, BMJ yeah. had it at, at five to 40 people dying after reinfections. And that's out of 190 million. Right. That's not to say another wave of evolution of the virus won't do something. But we covered all that. And I, I think yeah. I think we do need to do another episode um, digging into... On where we're at right now. So on where we're at right now. Uh, especially mm. in light of the fact that Zimbabwe has, over the last few days, been releasing four times more vaccines per day than South Africa. Oh, don't worry. It's not just uh, Zimbabwe. Um, Malawi's ahead of us. Uh, Rwanda's ahead of us. Uh, India has vaccinated 5% of its population, which is like basically the whole of South Africa. <laughs> it's about 5% of India's population. Morocco is ahead of us. I think Senegal's also ahead of us. Guatemala, Kazakhstan. Uh, South Africa is not doing so well on the vaccination front. Yeah. Also, not so well on the economic front. We got a message uh, sent by our C uh, by John Endress, our CFO, uh, oh, from Herman Pretorius, rather, coming from the South African Reserve Bank, uh, which looks at uh, all emerging and market and developing economies, uh, right. GDP growth, 2019, 2020, and then leading up in projections to 2024, Sub-Saharan Africa average and South Africa. And we are worse. We are the worst of all by double. <laughs> yeah, all of the yeah, time. That seems, that seems about right. That seems about right. Indeed. So, so uh, okay. So, we are but but not that's a good place. But but let's talk about someone else's problems for a change. Yes. Yes. That's what and we that have to is. Uh, we mentioned it. I think at the end of last week's episode when we talked a little bit about. Uh, the beginning of the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the police officer accused of uh, killing George Floyd by kneeling on his neck. Um, and the prosecution has begun to present its case. Now, I've just read a little bit about it, but Gabriel's actually watched, I think, quite a lot of it so far. And CNN. I think... Accepting... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay, just to say, I have actually... I started watching it on CNN, but then I couldn't carry on watching it on CNN because... <laughs> Every time there's a sidebar, so you know, the, one nice thing about COVID is is usually when there's a sidebar, the lawyers actually go up to the judge's bench and they sort of whisper mm -hmm. at each other so that not not everyone else hears what they're saying. Right. And that always, I mean, there was something quite sweet about that, but it always did seem a little bit silly. Like, how can they possibly be whispering so silently that the jury can't pick up on what's being said? Uh, and now. You know, they all have microphones and headphones and uh, and masks and whatnot. Um, but then CNN cuts in with just co with really bad um, commentary. Commentary. They they contradict themselves. They are totally obsessed with only presenting one side of the case. It's and it's also it's always just people who need to fill the fill the time. It's the curse of twenty four hour news. It's just yeah. some sort of noise, just so that there's no silence. And because my friend, God, my friend who's God been watching it on science. CNN said, I can't handle watching this trial anymore because it's so uninteresting. And I said, yes, that's because the CNN presenters are not interested in the trial. Yeah. So the yeah. commentary they're yeah. giving is never germane to what's just been said, unless what's just been said was good for, to their case. But that's only some of the time. The rest of the time, right. they're not interested in the case. They're interested in some broader project. So I've gotten off of that and gotten onto watching the YouTube live streams. Uh, which is un oh, much better, much more civilized. Yeah, and I have been watching hours, but I was on my phone because I wanted to look up some names of some of the key witnesses, 
And I'm just not going to do the names. I'm going to describe them in generic terms. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to remember the names anyway. No, I don't think no one will remember their, their names after after this trial anyway. Um, unless they do something really wacky. But basically, uh, my impression, and you tell me whether you agree with me or not, is that, so obviously we've only seen the prosecution's case so far, so there may be something quite interesting to come. But the prosecution so far seems to be making a reasonable case, to say the least. Um, it's got like some actual evidence and facts, and that's something that you always worry about in a highly politicized case like this, that one side is just going to bring sort of emotive garbage. And that doesn't seem to be what the prosecution's bringing. They're bringing proper facts. They're saying they had a medical expert who went on and he said, look, this is... Uh, this is the symptoms of someone dying from a, you know, opioid overdose, which is what the defense claims. Um, and this is the symptoms of someone dying from lack of oxygen. And you can see uh, what the what the symptoms match in the video here. And that's one of the useful things about this trial, actually, is that there is, you know, this very specific documented footage of the death, mm. um, which I think makes it a bit different from a lot of these trials. Uh, but anyway, so... My impression is that the, the prosecution's got a pretty strong case. What's what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think the prosecution has got a very strong case. I think that the the two general questions that have to be answered are what was the cause of death? If right. the cause of death was Derek Chauvin, the police officer, then the second question is, was it reasonable for him to right. cause that death? Or, right. And the second point is, I think, where the real battle is probably going to be fought, right? Well, so I did not think so. Going into the trial, I read the forensic reports last year um, mm. in, in preparation for a, a report that I wrote about Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's a long document that I issued for the Institute. And it's called uh, Because Black Lives Matter. You can probably find it on our website under reports. Yeah. Um, and I still think it's some some one of the better things I've done. Um, and 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 I feel very vindicated because at the time, some people. So I noticed that uh, uh, and flagged the fact that uh, uh, Floyd, Mr. Floyd, had uh, traces of fentanyl, which is basically like a kind of heroin uh, and methamphetamine and nicotine and uh marijuana in his blood but the most serious ones being and COVID. And COVID. <laughs> this heavy upper and this heavy downer right. and that and that that could produce uh, an overdose that could produce death um but i i said in the report and i said on one of our uh daily friend podcasts uh south africa's most popular news opinion podcast uh hosted by one is it, young Nicholas is, it, is it most popular yeah i don't think it's some most weeks. popular but it is best yeah, in some weeks maybe, but it is also pissed. This is even more important. Anyway, I said, you know, I said, uh, I remember uh, chatting with Sargon. I was like, I don't think you should, I don't think we can jump to any conclusion that that the drugs caused his death because the levels, while high, were not in the zone that you'd expect to kill a man right. who has taken these kind of drugs before and so has a right. bit of tolerance. And that, that's exactly what. What the prosecution was saying is that, you know, because he was a, a ritual abuser of these drugs, um, his his the levels in his blood are really not as significant as you might think because he was kind of semi-immune to them. Now, now, part of what undermines that argument 
is the fact that Derek Chauvin's sorry that George Floyd's girlfriend testified that he hadn't been taking no. drugs that he had a few months before his death had an overdose but then since then he hadn't really been taking drugs so if her version is true he's not doing any drugs for 3 months he loses his tolerance he then does them on the day that in combination with the uh heavy stress of this arrest, arrest and all that, yeah. uh, triggers basically a heart attack or something of the like, a stroke, and that produces death. Right, okay, right. so that was the version that seemed open to me, and to my mind, the first—I mean, the first sort of eight days of uh, cross-examination were of witnesses, as you say, called by the prosecution. Um, so, you know, that's worth bearing in mind. But witnesses called by yeah, the prosecution it, arguing. And uh, uh, I just. I just want to uh, add one more thing is that the defense has medical experts who are arguing the opposite opposite. So we will hear from them later in the trial. We will hear from them. Yeah. Uh, but just in terms of what we've already seen, we saw over a week's worth of testimony coming from uh, other police officers, trainers, people who are familiar both with the Minneapolis police and its training system and its rules and regulations, the supervisor, the uh, chief of police in Minneapolis, the chief of training, who's a very remarkable woman who served many tours as a, a law, as a soldier, and as well as being super trained in many degrees and all these kinds of things. Very serious, very impressive people, all saying fairly unequivocally that uh, Chauvin uh, acted as no police officer ought to act. Uh, so I thought, okay, this is looking... Like the prosecution has wrapped up the thought that uh, you can't say what he did was fully reasonable, uh, but then it's going to turn on cause of death. Is there reasonable doubt? You know, you might think it looks like he probably killed the guy, but as long as there's reasonable doubt that Floyd would have died anyway uh, because of the drugs and his heart condition, 75% blocked artery, uh, a stroke a few months ago, an overdose event a few months ago, and so on, that might leave room for doubt. Then yesterday, um, the defense got, in my view, its single strongest testimony. And this is from this pulmonologist who has been in the industry for 47 years. He's a sort of German-American chap with a funny accent. Um, and he said unequivocally, no, this could not have been caused by the drugs. And this is not right. because the levels aren't high enough. Uh, sure, it could happen uh, uh, that someone who hasn't taken drugs for a while and then takes this and then is super stressed could. The reason he claims it couldn't have been the drugs is by looking at the video and counting Floyd's breaths. Yes. You can sort of see them move. By counting the last moment that Floyd kicks, seeing the way that he degrades – that right. it's a slow degradation in breathing and in right. vocalization. And this yeah, is not said, consistent with right. the idea that he died of drugs, because just to clarify this point, if he died of drugs, the mechanism, which this expert said, is the only mechanism by which this concoction of drugs could trigger death, is by sending you into, an, into a coma. So the part of your brain, yes. I think it's the... Uh, 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 um, Amygdala oblongata. No, I don't want to say the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> yes. Abdullah oblongata. The sort of the, the part of the brain sort of near the base, near the uh, uh, spinal cord, that's kind of like your lizard brain. You know, it's in charge of, of running various functions. Like you don't, 
you consciously actually can think about breathing. So you can access that function and take conscious control of it. But you have control over your heart rate, even though you don't have access to that fact consciously. There's a part right, of your right. brain that is controlling your heart rate. There's a part of your brain that's controlling the sphincter muscles in your gut and colon that are sort of pushing through uh, your digestive tract. There's the, these kinds of things are <clears throat> there's control of the limbic system. These things are controlled by that part of the brain. And if you uh, overdose on a drug like heroin, fentanyl, the signals are too weak. Basically, you go into a coma and the signals being sent by that part of the brain are too weak to get the heart to do what so it needs to do. So your organs just stop working, yeah. So your heart stops pumping and so... Uh, you're not getting oxygenated blood to your brain that amplifies the signal failure and that also results in organ death. So in fact, fentanyl can't, you know, so this is just a point of clarity, um, which the, you know, witness needed to be prompted on, I must say, uh, by the defense. You can die from lack of oxygen. Aphyxia can be produced by, by a drug overdose. It's just that the mechanism for that to happen would be, going into a coma and based on his reading of the video evidence floyd doesn't go into a coma and then die from lack of oxygen rather he sort of slowly is still conscious and losing consciousness as he's losing the ability to breathe yeah. which yeah. is consistent with the knee on the neck as well as the knee on the back sort of squeezing his diaphragm squeezing his uh lower organs up into the diaphragm so that it's got less room. Right. And a very important further fact to consider is the uh, carbon dioxide levels in the blood. Yes. So if, you, if you're struggling you can't, to breathe... You can't breathe. You can't push that carbon dioxide out. But you're still, you're still metabolizing, right? Whereas right. if you have the sort of classic drug overdose way of dying, everything is just slowing down. Right. So you're less carbon. It's 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 less the case that you you're carbon saturated, and and that's part of the reason that your heart can't pump blood. It's more the case that the brain is no longer sending the signals to do the stuff, and then you die. So hypoxia yeah. and asphyxia. Um, anyway, it's it is a it it is one version. I will say that that witness um, exhibited noticeable if subtle uh levels of hostility towards the defense and noticeable if subtle uh cooperation with the prosecution attorneys now this is not entirely yeah. surprising he had already met with the prosecution attorneys six or seven times from january through april um he obviously was called forward as an expert witness who had independently come to the conclusion that floyd was killed right. by chauvin he was up there to make that point, to try and persuade the jury of that point. That is the kind of thing that expert witnesses are to do. Uh, I think I, I, I couldn't really pick out a material contradiction. The hostility just came in the form of him sort of repeatedly getting the defense to repeat their questions and interrupting and so on and, and not doing that for right. the prosecution side. That's not true for the police. Some of the police, I think, undermine their own credibility. Uh, for example, uh, the supervisor said that he reviewed the body camera images. I watched all hour and a half of the available from the different officers' body cam images. And it, it's very clear that Floyd says, I can't breathe several times before anyone is touching him. Yes. It's very Which clear is, that 
Floyd kicks uh, his way through the car. This guy, this police officer said, no, uh, you know, there was no kicking in the body camera footage. Uh, there was no reason for the cops to to doubt that Floyd was being honest when he said he couldn't breathe when he was uh, being knelt on on the ground. Right. Uh, and, and to conclude the thought, I think that the defense is, is going to have a battle of the expert witnesses. It'll... Uh, I'm not cynical. I think that there is a chance that they will bring forward an expert witness who has something to say that I don't know. I'm just a layman. Uh, maybe right. there's something I don't know, and that'll be interesting to see. But it'll also, I think, be transparent if they're just bringing in an expert witness who is kind of abstractly and vaguely sort of saying, you know, science is very complicated and there always has to be doubt, and and that's not going to work. Yeah. So yeah. I think yeah. their only real shot at defense is going to be, and it's going to be interesting to see if they risk this, but their only real shot at defense is going to be that Floyd is the boy who cried wolf. Right. He said, I can't breathe. And then uh, they took him out of the car and then he really couldn't breathe. But because he had been saying it beforehand, um, they just assumed that he was talking rubbish again and, and ignored his pleas. And he, uh, said, and he, he, said, he said, you can't put me in the car because I'm claustrophobic. Now, he's yes. clearly not claustrophobic. The arrest begins with him in a car. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it begins with him saying, you know, put both your hands on the steering wheel, him refusing to do so. He puts one hand on the steering wheel, the other hand is fishing around, uh, presumably for the drugs that were found in the backseat with traces, you know, these heavy drugs, fentanyl and methanol. Right. Yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, so I he believe was the lying. critical term for it is he was freaking out. Yeah, he was freaking out, but but misrepresenting the facts. You can't say, don't put me in the back of a police car because I'm claustrophobic, when you're clearly right. not claustrophobic. Uh, right. Say you can't breathe when you clearly can breathe when no one is touching you. Um, and and not have that affect your judgment somehow. Now, I, right. I, 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 I'm not saying that um, this defense will work. I think everyone's been focusing on nine and a half minutes. I think that's absurd. The first four or five minutes of the police's kneeling down on Floyd, to my mind, seem very reasonable. And many of the police experts and some of the medical experts said that as well. Right. He was struggling. He was resistant. He had been lying. Uh, he did pose a credible threat. Uh, but it's the last four minutes, really. Uh, right. Because he he's basically subdued then. Out. And then, yeah. And then he passes out and... They take a while to react. And the the uh, the sister isn't helped, I think, by actually the spectators because there were people around the scene saying, you know, get off him. Uh, he, he can't breathe, that kind of thing. And so it was a very confusing, stressful environment, I think, for basically everyone involved, which certainly didn't help anyone's decision making. No. I mean, I think it would have been... Um... In hindsight, it seems clear to me that it would have been better for, you know, at, at about four, four and a half minutes when one of the officers says, look, he's looking, you know, can we turn him onto his side? Uh, that would have been the right thing to do. It would have been the right yes. thing to do for the spectators to say, you know, please kindly, sir, we're on the other side. We, we, we pose no threat to you. We understand that you're dealing with a dangerous dude. Um but please right. consider just toning down the, you know, just turn him on his side. You're all armed and strong. You know, if they'd shown 
would have been better if they'd shown respect rather than uh right and that's, and that's what you can and 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 most importantly one of them going right up to the police right up to his head um but but that kind of hindsight stuff you know although it does we could imagine it being done better in those ways um well well let me let me just say i don't that think when, it's exculpatory yeah. necessarily no sure um, well, and when people when people talk about this the you know that this being caused by these larger societal issues like the bad relationship between police and communities this is kind of what they mean um is the way that the police are interacting with these guys and the community thinks that they're you know being too cruel to him and the police kind of just expecting people to say that whether they're being cruel or not and so they ignore them um and i think i think that's also quite interesting an interesting aspect of this case is that you can clearly see the negative effects of that kind of breakdown of relationship um between uh this community and and those cops right so i think you're saying the cry wolf thing like from Floyd's point of view he said i can't breathe when he could breathe then when he can't breathe and says i can't breathe harder to believe him from the community cop relating point of view you know when when communities cry wolf and say the cops are being terrible when they aren't, right. and the cops don't believe, they don't sort of uh, take as real evidence uh, right. what's going yeah, but, on there. But also, I think that is I mean, true. Um, also, also that the cops are themselves kind of develop almost a kind of a bit of a thick skin towards their interactions with the community in general, and that they sort of just don't take anything really seriously, and there's a kind of callousness that maybe creeps into their behaviour. Um, I'm not saying this is definitely the case, but I could imagine this happening yeah. uh, where, where people, where, where this kind of back and forth between the community, a suspect and the police, the way these three interact, as, as in this case, is just so normal for the cops that they just kind of don't really think about it too much um, when perhaps they should. And you know what's interesting is that, I mean, so the first member of the community to, to sort of start engaging with the cops and with George Floyd is an elder black man who mm. before Floyd is put in the car, when he's been frog marched in cuffs to the police car uh, and then put up against the side so they can search him for weapons, pending unlocking the car, opening the door and putting him in the back seat. Um, this guy says, you know, Floyd is saying, you can't put me in there. I'm claustrophobic. I can't deal with this. I can't breathe. Um, and this older black gentleman says, you're not going to win. Just get in the car. Right. <laughs> he's so on the cop side. He's so also on Floyd's side. He's saying, dude, right. don't don't make this harder for yourself yeah, than it needs to be. It's a wise old man. He's seen this happen before and he's like, just 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 go along right. with this. Everyone yeah. just just play your role. Calm down. Okay. Yeah. Calm down and do what you have to do. And that guy is is the is the sort of he's the voice of reason that somehow gets lost in all of this. Right. Uh tragically. Um, and, and of course the, the life that's lost is Floyd's and yeah, so, 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 so right now we're not in a totally surprising position, but right now, uh, I think the prosecution's case is, looks extremely strong right now. I think that, um, Floyd, that, that Chauvin's family are going to be thinking Hull's teeth, uh, he's going to jail. And 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 the, and the best that one can hope for is to sort of mitigate the sentence by you know saying okay he's guilty of these things it wasn't reasonable he caused the death 
But given the complicated circumstances, given the years of service on the force, given all the ups and downs, all you know, things, yeah, yeah. maybe give him a reduced sentence. Um, I th right now, that looks like the best case for the defense and the best case for the prosecution looks like they might actually get their, I think, second degree murder in American terms, sort of full, right. full blooded conviction. Um, the defense is to come and that might change things. It's hard to see how right now, but that's the exciting thing about being <laughs> about a, trials, lay right. a layman and an outsider and about trials is that we don't know what lies ahead. So I am really looking forward to seeing what. But this is this is also and I mean, I know this is such an obvious point, but it is just worth saying this is why we have proper trials is so that you can actually go into things, you know, instead of having the kind of media trial by armchair commentator. Now we're yep. having people who actually look into the whole thing properly and we can get through the details and truly find out what happened here. And that's so far seems to be what's happening. So so this is the thing of all of I have found this to be a remarkably impressive process. Yes, some of the cops that have testified against Chauvin have been not exactly sober and judicious all of the way through, but for the most part they have been. And where they haven't mm -hmm. been, the defense has the capacity to cross-examine the judge has insisted on allowing the hard questions going through and gently and sympathetically pointing it out. And just to give people a flavor of the characters, if they haven't been watching the trial, the prosecution has sort of half a million attorneys. One of them is this lady <laughs> who sort of wears her hair at shoulder length, kind of looks dirty and oily, obviously deliberately done, uh, very high cheekbones, thin little mouth, bird-like features and uh, physical tics. She often almost touches her face or maybe just glances it with the uh, very faintest <laughs> tip of her finger. And so you, you see, just, it's it's moments like this that make me think we should go on. Uh, uh, we should we should go on video as well, not just because then you could see Gabriel's great caricature here. Anyway, <laughs> so she's great because she seems like she seems like a delicate little bird that could only survive by clinging to rules and laws backed up by police. You know, she she embodies. Fragile civilization in the sense. Civilized justice, so yes. to speak. <laughs> then you've got then you've got like this um white dude who looks like a rugby player, um, sort of blonde hair, very th sort of thick nose, thick neck, thick wrists, and he and he's sort of just he's out there to tackle. He he's a tackler. <laughs> um then then you've got this like uh black uh prosecutor who is like pretty bald and slightly gray and looks a little bit disheveled, but speaks in a super animated way and did the best. I mean, he he examined, uh, he led the examination of the German expert witness from the prosecution side and really got the expert witness to sing. I would say that he 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 did the best in examination. Then on the defensive side, leading the cross-examination, they've really just had one guy who don't know how to describe him. I suppose he has a very, uh, you know, square jaw, square hairline, thick hair, combed back, um, uh, tall without being quite as tall as the rugby player, uh, broad without being quite as broad. Um, he looks like, you know, trimmed beard and not like a namby-pamby beard that just covers your chin, like a full beard, <laughs> but neatly... Yeah manicured and shaven so so the impression that i hope i'm creating is of is of like a very svelte quite machismo tough guy like a bear a bear of a man right he really looks like a bear of a man but in your mind's eye soften the mouth 
get a more gentle version of the nose, add some sparkle to the eyes, round them out a little bit, and you see a teddy bear. He's this, <laughs> he's this wonderful teddy bear of a man who's really sympathetic and like a bit tough and a bit skeptical sometimes, but skeptical like, oh, okay, that's what you say. Okay, so here's my next question. And I think that he is just about the best cast defense attorney um, <laughs> human history. that, that no, Hollywood couldn't do better. And then the last thing just to say about the theater of it all is the judge's mask, you know, because they always have to put on their masks in between when they do the sidebars and whatever. The yeah. judge's mask is, is, is sort of camo green um, on thick sort of army canvas material and little brass holes that the strings go through to wrap around his ears. <laughs> but the strange thing about it is it's completely flat. It flattens out his nose. So it looks like a, not like a tent, but like a flat army canvas being draped over uh, a, a, a sort of important bunker or something. And right. it, gives, it gives the judge a very sort of alien, slightly camp, slightly terrifying kind of uh, futuristic visage <laughs> and i don't know i just i respect america i respect america for going to this effort for televising right. thing for this having this expert see. judge and these great witnesses and these great lawyers and these it's it's uh, it's civilization man and it's uh it's right. i is, find it this gripping. is when you see see the real the real america that's the great superpower it's when you see an great legal process being carried out and the sort of true principles of liberty and justice being, you know, put to the test and examined in, in reality. Not, you know, not right to cross-examine. Yeah. Right. Not 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 when you watch, I don't know, cable news like CNN or Fox or whatever, and you see a bunch of morons who don't really know anything shouting at each other about whether Mr. Potato Head has the right gender or whatever <laughs> they're arguing about this week. <laughs> Which is kind of the worst of America in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. And we'd like to focus on the worst of America. I would like to, just because I'm a bit irritated with that country right now. But this 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 trial is mm -hmm. the exception that is that's 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 holding my heart a little bit. Um so far I've seen nothing to betray my trust in the system. And yeah, I mean, in terms of broader political consequences, I think that if Chauvin is found guilty. I suspect minimal backlash. Hmm. I think if he's fully vindicated, there will be uh, a larger backlash. Definitely. Um, and what if there's a middle? But a if middle there's, there's a middle kind of thing, I think both sides might be a bit frustrated, but uh, less likelihood of tires being burnt and, and buildings being ransacked. I don't know, but but so far it seems like the ruling that's going to come out is going to be a credible one, and so far it's looking very bad for Chauvin. Um, yeah. I think that there was just one other point that I wanted to make about the the border implications. I think that this trial, I suspect that this trial is bad for Black Lives Matter. Yeah, well, I think any time that we actually kind of focus on, you know, processes and 
proper procedure and we actually see the value of the justice system and people. And the moment the story gets more complicated than bad white police officer, innocent black dude, then... The racial diversity of the witnesses, of the lawyers, the the sort of, the, the way that, I don't know, if you were just a racial bean counter, I think... I think you'd be struggling to make sense of this. The, you right, know, that's 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 the great thing about a trial. It demolishes stupid narratives because I, the truth isn't a stupid narrative. Yeah, I think I think there's I think the the far more common thing is just like you know, uh, you know, from the medical staff. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of commitment. There was a lot of commitment to try and save Floyd's life. Uh, mm. It is disturbing. I will say it's disturbing to look into, you know, uh, Floyd was dead on arrival, as it were. When the EMTs arrived, they couldn't find a pulse. Put him in the ambulance, couldn't find a pulse. Uh, Watching that footage is some of the hardest footage to watch, in part because it takes them a bit of a while to get going. And I think that seems disturbing. I have spoken to EMTs and doctors and... um, They've expressed to me on a personal level how important it is for them to sort of operate in quite a disinterested way, to right. stay very calm and methodical. And you get the guy in the gurney, then you get the gurney in the ambulance, then you turn to the left, do this, then you turn to the right, do that, then you turn around and do this, then you start the chest compressions. So that does add 40 seconds, but doing it like that every time means overall you're much more likely to save lives overall you're much less likely to burn out if you sort of racing around like uh some tv show uh yeah not yeah, you, more haste gonna, makes less speed is the right yeah you, you and and also if you don't kind of mentally and emotionally prepare yourself like i think dealing with dead people or people who are close to death every single day is very very taxing on one's soul and mind so that's a tough part of it and the, and the hardest and it's, I think by the by the time I sort of got video-wise into the ambulance, I'd already watched a lot of the other footage quite a few times. Um, you know, you get into the ambulance on the police's body cam footage, and and the police, you know, he's asked to do the chest compressions, and he's doing the chest compressions, and and you, it's it's such a vivid footage because mm. he is leaning over George Floyd, pumping his chest with the camera on his own chest. And you're no. just watching him and hearing him breathe and seeing the sweat uh, uh, emerge from his pores. Mm. And and then they get this chest compression machine, which is basically like a big uh, belt that sticks out about a meter above your chest, goes around no. the body and clips in to either side of the gurney that the George Floyd is on. And the doctor clips the one side on very quickly and then struggles to clip the other side on because George Floyd's chest is so wide. So he's struggling to get in there. And it's just this little plastic thing that has to clip in, but it has to clip in properly. And it takes like, I think I counted 35, 40 seconds, maybe 50 seconds of just like, just like fumbling with a plastic connector to a plastic. Oh, yeah, I know. 
wire. That's, and while and someone is dying underneath you, it's just... And he's already dead, and you're trying to bring him back to life. And, like, every second yeah. wasted is reducing the odds of him coming back to life. And they and first, they're trying to do it very calmly, and the doctor's trying to do it. Then he can't do it. The cop's like, how can I help? The doctor's like, okay, just do this. Then that's not working. Then this is not working. Then they do start getting a bit panicked. Then it's like, okay, now calm down. Then, okay, I do this. Then they finally get it clicked in. And But it just feels like an eternity. And then when that machine... That, that belt then going around you a meter above your chest coming out of it directly above your chest is this uh, metal pipe ending on like a suction pad, which then is placed right. on your chest. And then that does the automatic machine driven compressions. And that produces an entirely different effect to the hand compressions. That seems much more also quite disturbing because Floyd seems in a way to be alive because his belly is rising and falling and his head's moving and the cop's trying to hold his head. And that just keeps going for a while. And then the cop gets out after, you know, there's nothing left for him to do and there's more medical staff on hand and he's starting to crowd out the ambulance. And then you go with him to make sure that Floyd's car is locked and <laughs> pick up evidence. And then go to the store, which had reported the original crime of selling goods with a fake $20 bill and yeah. recording evidence from the people in the store, collecting the bill, checking if this is the same bill, confirming whether or not the bill was actually used for a sale or if it was confiscated before use of sale. And it is, it's haunting. And, and this is mm. the nice cop who sort of said, you know, can't we turn him on his side? You, you, look, you might, you might hate this guy and say, he should have actually forced, you know, he should have said, screw you. We've got to turn him on his side. You know, you might think he didn't do right. that. However you feel about him, it's, it's cinema verite. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a hard and challenging and very human thing to sit in, in his point of view for yeah. that 45 minutes that starts with an arrest that is, is badly resisted, goes through to a, a death, perhaps right. a killing, perhaps even murder, then trying to right. save this guy's life, then going to collect further evidence. It's, it's, uh, I don't know, man. I think that, yeah, I mean, like you said, part of the secret source here is death and, and, uh, and it is a, it is a thing to look at. It is a thing to think about seriously. And it's, and, and it's, it's interesting to sort of also just be in the minds of those people who's, who still are alive, but who were right there. Because right, right. because as much as the POV of the camera puts you there, you you're not making a difference, so you're not responsible. Right, it, you know what? Actually, this is this is kind of like I think the way that you know there's some people spend a lot of time watching uh, videos online of traumatic events happening, and you kind of wonder why sometimes. I think a lot of people I think wonder why, and that's because there's something so emotionally powerfully visceral about this this horror of of seeing something so terrible happen in front of your eyes that um well i say that i don't truly identify it i can understand how how other people could feel that way uh, about something and, yeah. and and just sort of be captivated by it um, and just to just to clarify the, the reason i was saying this trial is bad for blm is not only because of what's happening in the trial but also because of this footage getting attention again and again and, yes. and it does just humanize it. Like, I think it's, I think it's, um, right. You understand the cops as people rather than just yeah. pawns of some great systemic problem. Like PLM yeah. would like us to believe. Right. to believe. And, and so, and so people can do wrong things for sure. Um, 
but the evidence that the criminal justice system is racist is is conspicuous by its evidence absence and the evidence right. that even in this process whatever went wrong with floyd uh had to do with race um is something i'm really struggling to find it it, it seems <laughs> yes it seems no, like it, a lot went wrong but but that's but that's been the case from the beginning right that there was this motive was assumed without any real evidence yeah right and none of that um, seems to have come forward maybe we'll see something else but that 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 yeah. seems to be off the cards and i think i'm looking for hope in that i'm looking for hope in terms of the broader political consequences in terms of the trial my hope is that the, it's going to come to a credible and very serious verdict and in terms right. of the broader consequences that it's going to be the kind of verdict that that judges a human or a couple of humans yes. and not and a, uh, and a specific set of events not some grand narrative, systemic whatever yeah which means it's the kind of thing we know how to deal with i mean people have been killing for a long time people have been killing people for a long time and and, and we know one thing democracy is actually you know a constitutional democracy is pretty good at dealing with that it's a tragedy it's a terrible yeah. thing but but people know how to respond to that um right. and that seems to be what's happening so <clears throat> i don't know maybe i'm just waffling at this stage um <laughs> no man i think i i i i completely get where you're coming from um but i think that's probably all we do have to say on this topic at least yeah. until more facts come out in in the trial which inevitably they will uh and we'll see how things look when do you know when it's supposed to wrap up um i don't think it has a a, a definitive end date but i can't imagine it's going to go for much more than a week Okay, that's quite fast. I thought it would probably drag on for a couple of End of months next to week. remember. Well, mm. no. So I think the overall, I think once a verdict is found on Chauvin, um, there will be... Yeah, the, that part of the trial will go on for a long time, presumably, because there'll be a big fight over sentencing. Sentencing, and then there'll be the other cops. Right. And right. and and once we get to the other cops, we might start seeing testimony. I, d I doubt that Chauvin will testify. I doubt that his attorney would allow him to do that. Um, yeah, but I think when the other cops go, uh, <laughs> we remember trial, from the they, uh, they, they might testify. Right, we remember from the uh, Oscar Pistorius case that testifying in a trial is sometimes not the greatest idea. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, it's it's unusual in a trial where there is so much evidence to hand already. Usually, testimony is recommended by a defendant in the event that evidence can only be entered into the record on their foundation, on the foundation of yes. their testimony. Right. So he would have to know something that nobody else knows. And it just doesn't seem like there's there's anything left to know. Right. That's actually one of the other interesting things about this this whole thing is that it's such a modern trial and the fact that the whole thing was basically filmed and we've got all these scientific instruments for testing people's blood and you know that kind of thing and if you contrast that with i mean maybe as a bit of a segue into our next section it the dreyfus trial is probably maybe the most famous and influential criminal trial of the post-industrial age in france dreyfus is a jew charged with uh, 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 conspiracy to do treason with basically yeah, yeah. giving basically information to the Germans. Leaking information to the Germans, yeah. And, oh my God, dude, that trial, 
So this is like 1870 or 1880 or 1890 or something? Oh, around there, yeah. Dude, that trial kind of starts out with, they've got a Dreyfus. They've got like a, a an initial M Dreyfus or something uh, uh, signed on, on one of these documents that they picked out, which seemed to be sort of an intercepted bit of uh, spyware leaked information. Then they sort of go through the officer corpse list of names, and then they find that there's a Dreyfus. They find two Dreyfuses with the same name, and then they're like, "No, it can't be that one. He's like a good dude. It must be this other one. He's a Jew." It must be the Jew, yes. <laughs> Which is what should we say? Not the not the highest standard of um, of criminal procedure, criminal prosecution. And then and then it's like you know handwriting experts being like, "Is this his handwriting?" and you know, it's the testimony, the evidence, it's all so weak. And and this is not to say, I mean, I think that there was an interesting case to be made against this this poor Dreyfus. Um, there was some prima facie evidence, but, mm. um, oh, Lord, it, it, it was so ambiguous. It was such a blank canvas that everyone wow. could project their own biases onto it. Yeah, and it, it helped tear the country apart. Um, it really did. It yeah, really which did. is exactly why you need good criminal procedures, because if you don't, ooh, you're playing with fire. Yeah. Um, so and, we're blessed, and, and man. We're said, blessed by the internet. We're blessed by body cameras. We're we blessed are. by carbon dioxide blood testing. We're blessed by right. the ability to test the, the Floyd's blood and his urine and, and know well, the degradations also, of the chemicals. We're also blessed by the fact that the world's most powerful nation has important systems of justice and things that are fair and thorough yeah. as opposed to what we were going to talk about now which is um something i've recently picked up a bit of an interest in which is the spanish civil war uh where it's it's a fascinating tale of how a nation essentially committed suicide uh i mean spain was it's kind of difficult to say when spain started being badly run arguably you could say that it was from the year 1490, yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the disasters that led up to the Spanish Civil War in 1936 probably began around the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1812. So that's kind of just towards the end of the Napoleonic era. And uh, so reading about it, it's just a fascinating tale of how every time the country had an opportunity to turn away from disaster and tearing itself apart, it didn't. So walk uh, us through that a little bit. So, so Napoleonic Wars, Spain is is basically invaded. Spain's kind of on France's side, and then, and then decides to not be on France's side, and then gets taken over by a foreign French monarch. <laughs> so, and boy, uh, Maximilian at the barricades is a very famous painting. Anyway, right. So the, the the Spanish have a difficult time in that war because a, there's a big bu bunch of fighting that takes place in its territory. Sorry, the death of Maximilian, not Maximilian at the barricades. I just there's an right. art critic who listens to this podcast and shouts at me when I get things. <laughs> so you know, we see we have the best listeners. To 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 paraphrase uh, the Trumpster, <laughs> we have the best listeners. <laughs> only the best, only the worst best. Okay, sorry, Nick. Spanish Civil War is much more important. Okay, so, so France is taken over by Spain. Uh, no, <laughs> Spain just has a lot of fighting in it, um, and it's got Portuguese, British, French armies tramping around the countryside and sort of looting things and burning things, and then you've got the Spanish people themselves fighting the French, and that's 
also quite destructive, as all guerrilla wars are. And they come out of this war, and things are just not very well settled. Um, they've got a monarchy and a church and an aristocracy uh, who are all viciously, they, they, they're clamped down on a lot of parts of society. They, they're quite restrictive in a lot of ways. They want things to stay kind of as they are. And so there's a lot of movement, especially inspired by Napoleon and the French Revolution and stuff, to kind of overturn these institutions. Um, it's, and, and this is a story across the whole of Europe, right? But in Spain, it's, it's particularly bad because uh, those old institutions are very strongly entrenched in Spain in a way because that they're Spain, not. Quite the Spain was the richest country in the world. Right. And, it was the and big, by far in Europe. Uh, yeah, right. They, you know, the Spanish owned Belgium, the Netherlands, they owned bits of Italy, uh, they owned bits of North Africa. They were like, and at one time, you know, Spain controlled most of Germany. Yeah. Um, and, so, a, so, and a lot of global trade. Right. Uh, and, you know, South America is sort of stuff. Yeah. So they have a, they had, they had these, the, the old institutions became very powerful. And as Spain kind of went into decline because it was had bad rulers, it fought too many wars, it was stretched too far, it imported far too much gold, all sorts of things went wrong for it. It didn't really kind of move with the time. So it was really, by the time the 19th century rolls around, it's it's kind of not doing so well. Um, during the Napoleonic Wars, or I think just after, it loses most of its Spanish colonies, like South America, they all revolt, they all go their own way. So the country's having a bit of a bad time. Yeah, Bolivar in South America, and there's also revolts in Cuba and uh, all over the place. And it's, it's just a total disaster. But so they have this internal dispute over what is Spain going to look like? It's a very uh, common problem that a lot of countries went through in Europe. But Spain happened to go through it in a much worse way. And that's because from what I've read of it and understand of it, Whenever the actors had a choice to choose the path of peace or, or, or um, I don't know, what's the word for it, compassion or restraint, they did not choose that path. They always chose to punish their enemies, to take revenge. And it starts in 1812, the liberals uh, in, in government to say to the king, OK, here we are. We're passing a new constitution which restricts your powers somewhat. And within two years, the king says, no, 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 I'm not done with this. And he throws it out. Um, and he dissolves the constitution, and for the next 60 years, Spain goes through just endless turmoil. There's a dispute over the succession, which leads to a group of people called the Carlists, who are very fundamental religious religious guys, very traditionalist, um, fighting a number of guerrilla wars against the government. There's uh, six, well, sorry, 12 coups in 60 years, <laughs> which top okay, successful. So that's not counting the coups that didn't yeah. work. Right. That's only, so, only successful coups. <laughs> and, and, like, the army is getting right. involved in everything. Generals are getting involved. Landlords are fighting with each other and fighting with the population. Um, as we get closer to the 20th century, Spain starts to have quite a big socialist movement because the liberals don't seem to be taking things far enough. Uh, the, the peasantry and the poor and the workers, they often, they're, they're inspired by the kind of socialist doctrine. And there's... There's a very real, in the way that, you know, socialism in the modern world is is kind of, I think, a bit abstract because it is very much a, a, an ideology of the 19th century in a lot of yeah. ways. And, and, and when socialists were railing against, you know, church and state and king and all those things, Spanish people really knew what that was about. 
Yeah. Right. They live with those institutions in a very real way that because those institutions don't really exist in the modern world for the most part. So a lot of people got attracted to that. And of course, as we know, socialists are not prone to making things more stable, um, especially when they're of the very revolutionary type. <laughs> and so they add to the to the equation and you've got different flavors, too. You've got the more sort of orthodox Marxists. And you've got all these uh, anarcho-syndicalist types who basically want the country to be run by trade unions or voting together in big councils. Uh, so that's Bukhari also making things more complicated. Yeah. And so finally, um, we get to the 20th century. Spain has a disastrous war. Oh, sorry. Just before that, they try becoming a republic for a year. But the people who found the republic just fight with each other over whether Spain should be a federal nation or a centralized nation. And so the army gets tired of them after a year and bring back the king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's in the 1870s or something. Then 1899, right, no, there's the Spanish-American War where the Americans right. drive the Spaniards out of Cuba. And this is the white man's burden thing, right? Is, uh, right. Rudyard Kipling goes, to, goes writes a letter to the American Senate saying, hey, you have to chase away these Spaniards. It's, the, it's the white man's burden to, to really take care of our darker skinned brothers even if they don't dig it and and the spaniards are basically dark darker skinned chaps they don't really know how to do it so so the spaniards have not only lost they're power no good at imperialism. they're no good at imperialism they're now being dissed as not white which sort of leaves its own weird legacy as we get into the 20th century because not only is yeah. socialism becoming a thing of the of the but 19th century bleeding but fascism mm -hmm. takes a, a strain too so it becomes important to be a kind of italian the spanish fascist uh, in some of the, in some circles, it's exactly. a real, so, it's a real cluck, I think, as the kids say. <laughs> Indeed. And, and it's amazing when, when I read through this patch of Spanish history, how a country could be so badly run for so long. <laughs> they do, after the failure of the first Spanish Republic, so between the 1870s and the beginning of the 20th century, they do actually have a period of, of like economic growth and stuff. Um, which I think that that actually, in a sense, makes the problems worse because it industrializes the country somewhat, which means that they start to have the problems that a newly industrialized country has. On top um, of the problems of an old <laughs> collapsed empire that's humiliated by comparison to its former right. glory. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so the 20th century rolls around, they lose this war to the Americans, they lose their, most of their overseas possessions. I think all they're left with after the Spanish-American War is a little bit of Morocco, what is today either the southern province of Morocco or the, the Swahari Democratic Arab Republic or whatever it's called, West Sahara, mm. and Equatorial Guinea, that great nation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find it on a map, you get a free episode of Two Crickets in the Thorn Tree. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it does help that it's in the name where it, where it sort of is. <laughs> Still, if you can find it. <laughs> so, so then I'm not the, saying if you can find it on a map where the names are written on the map. By the way, <laughs> oh yes, you actually can find it in real life. Yes, because it's not very big. Um, so, the, the Spanish enter the 20th century in a pretty bad state, and the king is like, no, no, no. The way we're going to recover this is we're going to take over Morocco. Um, That's going to make know, everyone feel better. That's, well, that's what history. France and Germany are doing. Everyone else ah. is distracting from their domestic problems. By The scramble for Africa like was very, very recently as well, right? So this seems like the logical thing to do if you're an ailing European power. I mean, if the Italians can take over a place, so can you. <laughs> <laughs> so 
when there's when there's a <laughs> when there's a a bit of a a, a squabble with some because because Spain already controls the north of Morocco. There's a there's a fight with some of the local tribes, and the Spanish monarchy is like, now's the time, army, go in, do your stuff, expand our influence. And the army doesn't really want to. They think they're not well equipped enough. That they're not prepared for this. They they go ahead and they do it and. Then it kind of turns into a shambles. They sort of win, but it's a bit of a shambles, and they they don't really take over Morocco. They just expand the area they control, and so it's it's it just leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth. It hurts the prestige of the king, and the army in particular is bitter because they were forced to do something they didn't really want to do, and it made them look like fools. Oh, so the king guns looking like fools, eh? That's not good. Just another thing to add to the fascist socialist. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> right. And so, so during this time, there's like a couple of uprisings by anarchists and fascists and all these sort of things going on. Um, they're, they're all quite small, though, and they get squashed. Um, so the year gets to 1923, and it's been 10 years since the failed Morocco thing. And the, the king is now desperate because he thinks, oh, no, the country's falling apart. The communists are going to rise up. We need to do something about this. I know. I'll get a dictator. So he finds a general who wants to take over. Yeah. And the guy doesn't need much encouragement because he basically already runs to wants to run the place. His name is uh, Primo de Aveira, something like that. Sorry, my Spanish pronunciation is even worse than all my other pronunciations. <laughs> uh, and the king basically supports him in a military coup that takes over the government. And then for 10 years or so, he runs as dictator. Dude, and what does he say, do? If you're a king who's going to get a dictator to run the country on your behalf, <laughs> if his name is Primo, then... <laughs> yeah, it seemed like a good idea, right? <laughs> at the time. You were there at the time. I can see how someone would think. This is so, so here's a pro tip for any monarchs listening to this podcast. If your country's in a bad state, don't encourage a military dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the guy's name is Primo. <laughs> right. Um, because, of course, this military dictatorship doesn't go well. The guy isn't super popular because he's a military dictator. So he tries to buy everyone off. You know, here, hey, business, here's some money. Hey, poor people, here's some cool services that you can get for free. And very soon, Spain is basically bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> also, he starts to get ill. And so he's not really able to run the country properly anymore. Ah, segundo. So the king realizes that this is a really bad thing for him because he supported this thing from the beginning. And so the bad press that the dictator is getting is going to reflect on him. So he gets together some people and he manages to pressure the dictator into resigning. And he he looks around desperately for someone to rescue him because as king, he's not really supposed to run the country, but he does have this influence of like, you know, who, who, who can be in charge. <laughs> And, and he appoints, he finds a general who will take over as dictator, and the general resigns almost immediately. He's like, no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> this is, uh, I believe, rugby, they call it a hospital pass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Eventually, he finds an admiral who agrees to do it. And what does the admiral do? He says, we, we can't just not have elections. We're going to have local government elections just to keep the socialists and the republicans and the democrats happy. So they hold the local government elections. And the monarchists do okay. They, they win more votes than anyone else. Um, but the problem is they lose every single big city, basically, to the and socialists is, and the republicans. This is early 1930s, hey? 
Right. This is 1930. Yeah, the year 19 is 1930 exactly. And the cities now start writing. The socialists are like, yes, the, the proletariat vanguard is, is, is now about to be on the verge of launching the revolution. So they, the, them and the Republicans go out into the streets and they riot and they say the king needs to get out. And the army, who's still kind of bitter at the king all those years ago for being given bad press and who blames him for the stupid dictatorship, they basically send a letter to the king that says, by the way, if the angry mob comes for you, we're not going to protect you. So cheers. So the king unceremoniously flees the country. Yeah. <laughs> Remember this when you think about the year 2014. But I'm sorry, carry on. Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, so, of course, now, you know, there's no king and the Republicans say, ah, yes, finally, we've done it. Spain is a modern country. We're going to be a republic now. So they found the second Spanish Republic and they have a nice flag with a purple band on the bottom. It's one of the few national flags that had purple on it. Um, and they a kind of parliament gets thrown together, but I don't think it's a, it's an elected parliament. It's kind of like just or. or, or it's not like, you know, it's just mostly drawn from the socialists and the Republicans. So it's it's like a hodgepodge of those guys. And they immediately start to pass a whole bunch of radical policies. Expropriation without compensation. Uh, they ban the Jesuits, the ancient, uh, well, not ancient, but very old Catholic order, which has been running in Spain for, you know, hundreds of years. And they confiscate their property. Um, they shut down a whole bunch of religious schools. And they say, you see, Spain's not going to be governed by the church. We're going to be a secular society. We're going to distribute land to the peasants. It's all going to be hunky-dory. And of course, this doesn't really make things better because suddenly you've got chaos and people squabbling over pieces of territory. Property rights aren't secure. It's a bit of a disaster. Um, and also, you've basically attacked the church. And so a lot of very religious people get upset. And Spain back then was a very, very religious country. <laughs> That's and two so, berries. It's a technical thing. <laughs> Not the same as Wanberry. This, this provisional government manages to to draft a new constitution for the republic, but they don't hold elections because they realize the <laughs> monarchists might actually win. <laughs> Which is always, that is just one of the best things about any story like this, is you think like, oh, we'll give people democracy, they'll vote for us. Well, maybe they actually aren't into the whole <laughs> expropriation without compensation, screw the church, like all of those things that work for a few proletarians in the suburbs don't actually work for the, most of the country who still live so, in the so rural yes, areas. Here's another pro tip so. for, for, for would-be Republicans out there looking to found a new republic. Don't postpone elections because you think your side is going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after two years of this, it's 1933, things have gone really bad for a while. And, I mean, they've been going bad for 100 years, but now they're like, it's up to a new level. And there's political violence as well, because, of course, we've seen the rise over the last couple of decades in Europe of fascism. And so not only are there monarchists and traditionalist and religious folks on the right, but there's now also fascists who are perhaps, shall we say, less restrained uh, when it comes to political violence. Mm. So the, the, the prime minister of Spain says, I'm going to... Uh, show everyone that the parliament is behind me. Um, I mean, you would expect it to be right because it's basically his political party. And I'm going to call for a vote of confidence in myself. 
and two thirds of the parliament abstains. <laughs> <laughs> so the president, who's also a Republican, a sort of left wing Republican, says, Look, Chief, this is not working. Just resign. And we're going to hold new elections. 1933, they hold new elections. And to no one's particular surprise, the monarchists and the parties of the right, the fascists, the, they, they have this really big party that's like got everyone in it, wins the election. It's not a comfortable majority and they need to form coalitions, but they do in fact win it. Um, but the president, who is a sort of lefty Republican, thinks, oh no, this is a disaster. Uh, you guys can't be the government. I'm going to ask the second biggest party to form the government, not you. <laughs> elections. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> right. So elections. Look, I know we sort of had an election, but let's not take it too seriously. <laughs> so he, Pinch of salt. How do you say that in he Spanish? Said, anyway. <laughs> we're going to take this with a shot of tequila. I think that's a different Spanish, but anyway, Karen. So, so it's kind of good in a certain sense because that means the more centrist center-right party takes over. But, you know, like during this whole period, there's continuing little anarchist uprisings. There's strikes being called by the big anarchist trade unions over and over and over again. Like just permanent strikes that the army and the police keep putting down. Political violence is increasing all the time in the streets. And people are very who want to sit on the sidelines or want to take this a little bit slowly are being pushed by violence and polarization into the extreme camps. Also, uh, eventually after a year, the, the rightists managed to get some ministers in. The president can't block them forever. And they decide to undo the expropriation of compensation. They decide to undo the banning of the Jesuits and all these things. And they try and give that property back to those to those groups. But of course, the property had already been handed out to peasants and workers and all sorts of things like that. So the landlords roll back into town and say, ha, 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 we're on charge. We're in charge now. Get off and um, throw many of these poor workers and peasants and stuff who had originally taken their things out into the street. Whereas before they had you know, worked together or cooperated in some way. All those relationships get destroyed and the landlords start mocking and taunting the workers saying, if you're starving, go and eat the Republic, mm. <laughs> which is mm. prophetically ominous. Mm. <laughs> um, and so basically uh, the, 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 the lefties took revenge on the right when they were in power and now the right is taking revenge of the lefties when they were in power. And so the, the left realizes that it really needs to kind of fix things. And so it, uh, uh, one of the center-left guys, a guy called Manuel Azara, I think is his name, Azarara, something like that. He decides that the only threat to the Republic is from the right. And so he's going to put a huge party together full of everyone on the left. And um, he calls this thing the popular front. And it's got everything from center lefties to hardline communists in it. Some Stalinist tankers. So there's some bad right. hombres. There's some bad hombres in this group. There's also some reasonable hombres in this group. And they managed to win the election that's then called um, by a very slim majority, although there's also accusations of fraud. Anyway, to cut a long story short, because this is, this is going on for a bit. At that point, uh, oh, and just before this happened, when the writers took over, the left tried to do a, a coup and overthrow the government, but that fails. So this time, the right looks at the left, says, hey, you tried a coup when you lost an election. Well, you guys cheated, or at least we think you cheated. So uh, we're going to try a coup. And they do. 
And this time it goes a little bit better than the left-wing one, and it starts the Spanish Civil War, which kills half a million people, completely wrecks the country, has people from all over the world coming there basically to fight. Um, and like to, George to fight Orwell, fascism. who's on the lefty side, best side. <laughs> so you say, uh, he's yeah, he's with the non-Stalinist lefties, uh, and he really gets his distaste from Stalinism because during the war, the Stalinists decide that the real problem with the left is they're not shooting enough of the weak world ones enough. <laughs> so that starts happening. Yeah, no, he does. He does grow up out of. He becomes more of a centrist right. as a result, which is really the best. Right, exactly. And he, he gets he gets a very nuanced view on he. I mean, he keeps his socialism until he dies, but he he gets a more nuanced view on it after this debacle of the Spanish Civil War. And in the end, the writers win the war and they bring to power a dictator, Franco, who rules the country until 1975. So it's a pretty sad story. And Spain basically doesn't become a modern, healthy country until 1975 when the dictatorship is dismantled. But I think it's... And, it's, it's, and just to finish this, and then the dictatorship is dismantled because Franco appoints a king to take yes. over after he dies. And then the king sort of uh, dissolves the dictatorship and sets up a constitutional monarchy. But then by 2013, 2014, is, has such a corruption scandal allegations <laughs> against him that he flees the country. So we've gone all the way back to the beginning. Now, I think he's still hiding in Dubai, actually, um, from those corruption allegations, the Spanish, the Spanish king, or at least the previous Spanish king. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, it's just a bit of a debacle from one stage to another. And I think the lesson of Spain is just... For every other country in the world, don't do this. It's like yeah. a how how not to do book, how not to be a country. <laughs> so, and it's a bad to worse story. And I think these kinds of stories are very interesting. It, it, to me, the story reminds me of uh, Bernard Lewis's "What Went Wrong." Just I've sort of spoken about this a few times. This uh, historian's analysis of the fall of Dar al Islam, the world of Islam, from the sort of great heydays of Baghdad a thousand years ago. Uh, the Islamic world was the leader of science and tolerance and political due process and rule of law and all kinds of good things. Uh, not great by modern standards, but by contemporary standards, just really yeah, the best. Right. The standards of the Middle Ages, they were pretty good. And and it just goes from bad to worse. Not for right. like 10 years or 20 years, but for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years in patterns, in some patterns that very much continue through to today. And Spain you know, just had the same thing of like the most wealthy, prosperous, interesting. I mean, Spanish, I was telling Nicholas before this, the, the Spanish golden age of theater uh, really does rival the Elizabethan golden age. And I, I think a lot of disinterested parties would say that it exceeds it. There's sort of that while Shakespeare might be greater than perhaps any particular Spanish playwright of, of the Spanish golden age, as a totality, the Spanish golden age produces uh, just more high quality works. Uh, across a greater diversity of sort of genre explorations and similar points can be made about painting um of course the spanish civil war produces guernica uh, uh which is arguably the best war painting of the 20th century and and the spanish part of the napoleonic wars produced the death of maximilian arguably the greatest war painting of the 19th century um so they managed to keep the art scene vibrant and interesting uh, and the elite managed to sort of retain these sort of poetic and artistic and high cultural accoutrements of of glorious right. civilization. The romance of the Spanish rest, culture has continued. Yeah, but for the rest, there's just this decline that goes from bad to worse, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Um, 
uh, finally, as you say, being lifted in the 1970s. To, to this day, Spain has the problem of having the highest capital to income ratio uh, really in the world. And high unemployment and things like that. Yeah, uh, so it's extremely, the, the median wealth in Spain is something like 220, 250,000 euros. It's like the, the 50 percentile, if you're in the middle, if you're the middle wealthy, not the average wealthy, the middle wealthy, you are worth about 5 million rand. Um, so it sounds like that's great, excepting the economy is very sluggish and unemployment is super right. high and social dysfunction is super high and Catalonia wants to break off from Spain and they've had constitutional crises about that. So they, they're still not totally out of the muck. They're not nearly in the same kind of position as the Republic of Ireland or France or Germany. Right. or uh, Definitely the most, one of the most troubled countries in Western Europe. So it's... And that's in a category that includes France. <laughs> So it's it's a it's a and the UK after Brexit. I mean, it's just the UK yeah, after just, Brexit as well, which was also a bit hairy. Yeah, but the UK is still fundamentally, in in many ways, in a much stronger position. Anyway, so I think that um, uh, one one of the takeaways is that things things really can go from bad to worse, uh, and that the complacent idea that. Well, if we just rip the band-aid, if we just have a great social dislocation, what will emerge from that is something more reasonable. <laughs> Not necessarily. It ain't necessary. And you also, so. also, also, even if it is the case, I mean, in Spain, eventually, right, they become a democracy. But they did have to go through 60 years of Frankist dictatorship, which included, for example, like mass executions of people after the war ended. The, the, the nationalists shot something like 30,000 people after the war was over. I mean, that's like kind of atrocities that you just can't even imagine going through. I think even in, you know, I sometimes see in the comments of like things we do, people say things like, ah, South Africa is not really a democracy or ah, the system doesn't work. Trust me, it can get a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> it can get a hell of a lot worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, in, and in a country like Spain, if the equivalent of the Floyd trial was happening, even today... It wouldn't. It wouldn't uh, have the same sort of level of credibility. And if it happened under Franco, I mean, <laughs> it would just be a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So be thankful for the the benefits of liberal democracy. I say. Um, and let's call it to a close there because we've gone uh, well over an hour now. Um, do you have any recommendations, Gabriel, before we finish off? Um, I do. I think my recommendation for this week is. Firing Line, which was a, which was one of the most important news American news shows in America, debating platforms. You'd have hour-long debates, yeah. more or less. Hosted by William F. Buckley, yeah. Yeah, William F. Buckley Jr., who uh, founded and was the editor in chief of the National Review, which to this day is kind of the flagship intellectual uh, publication of the center-right or right of America. Definitely a good place to go for news and opinion, in, in, in my view. Um, I second that completely. And anyway, the, the firing line interviews on YouTube are, they're fascinating. You know, sometimes Buckley just doesn't come off as the best. He definitely had some... <laughs> Uh, some problems. I think he 
he had ideas about race that don't square with mine. Uh, he wasn't a, a non-racialist. Yeah, especially in the especially in the early years. Um, yeah. I think he became better as time went on, but he started yeah. off basically with some very unpalatable views on on segregation in the South. Yeah, uh, he develops from those. Uh, he he becomes something like what a, a race celebrant. You know, one of these people who think all of the races need to be celebrated, rather than a non-racialist like, you know, let's let's celebrate other teams uh, and individuals. Uh, which still not great, but it is much more palatable. Uh, there's the the last interview that I watched is the one with Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali. This hour long mm. debate between these two, and it's interesting because uh, Buckley has this. I mean, he's got this dagger-eyed look that he can give now and then. He sort of flashes his eyes open. And these sort of <laughs> almost nicotine-stained long teeth with this, like, very uh, creepy grin. He's He's got a very, <laughs> very strange look and very compelling. The look of someone who knows they're smarter than you. The look of someone who knows that somehow they have more potency than you. And and sometimes it's right, sometimes <laughs> it's wrong. Um, his uh, uh, his interview with, with Noam Chomsky uh, includes the line. No, is it? Who's it with? He says to one of these guys, you know, uh, someone says, no, I'm not trying to insult you or anything. And he says, yeah, because if you did, I would knock your face through. Strange line. <laughs> <laughs> and then does this like flashes eyes open like dagger glass. But for the most part, what's amazing about it is how extremely, 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 unlike anything I'm used to seeing today, calm and collected and disinterested and abstract his tone is. Mm-hmm. And so with oh, Cassius Clay, for example, he's got he's got Muhammad Ali saying, I think all white people are devils. All white oh. people are our enemy. Buckley saying, you know, I disagree. I don't think races don't matter, but I do think they can get along in jolly harmony. And it's just, you know, I just, I was just thinking about my experience of being called a racist by uh, a few people a couple of weeks ago on national television a couple of times. And, you know, and Dilem Katama sort of saying it's, we need to drive these, occurrence for you, yes. these white <laughs> people these. into the sea and oh, he's a terrible one. And this guy, this boy with his white arrogance, don't, don't tell these things. He's very angry. And I try to keep cool, calm and collected, but it's like, uh, a little bit easy. difficult, but Buckley and Buckley's best guests, including Muhammad Ali, can mm. say these vituperative things and at the same time mm. be extremely cool. Christopher Hitchens, Noam Chomsky, Muhammad Ali, they're, they're, they're great exercises in watching the clash of ideas distilled right. and cooled down so that you don't see the noise of emotion, but feel the profundity of disagreement right. uh, exactly. in, in, in ways that really were life and death to others. But but for these guys, they were just the verbal uh, combatants. And I, right. I, it's been a, it's been a delight to go through it. And if you yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, give it a go. No, I, I, I completely second that recommendation. Um, Buckley's a very interesting chap. And uh, his his program firing line is a very good show. Um, I think I'd recommend anything on the on the Spanish Civil War. After I just rambled on about it, mine is a relatively amateurish new uh, new view on it. So I'm sure there are mistakes and fudges that I that I made in my description of of the circumstances that led to it. And so I'd recommend you go and read something on that. I think it is uh, a fascinating conflict. Um, of course, you know people like Ernest Hemingway wrote about it, and uh, for whom the bell tolls, for example. Yeah. Uh, which, Great novel. Oh my god. Gotcha. I, 
God, I hate that book, but maybe because I read it when I was too young. <laughs> it's so hard. It's the just, end of that book is so hard. And and oh, at the same point, the meaninglessness of suffering. Sometimes suffering is vindicated. Sometimes <laughs> it is not vindicated because things go from bad to worse. I, I once described it to a friend as 400 pages of descriptions of pine needle forests. But <laughs> you're rubbish. You're an insensitive <laughs> orangutan. Um, but but uh, perhaps perhaps also with, the homage um, to Catalonia. Yes, homage uh, to Catalonia. Is exactly. And by the way, homage to Catalonia, George Orwell. The homage to Catalonia is a song that the soldiers used to sing, and the song goes, "Rats, rats, rats as big as cats, rats, <laughs> rats, rats as big as cats." It's the homage to Catalonia, because <laughs> the rats would eat all the food stores in the in the army barracks behind the trench lines. And then they'd be as big as cats, while the while the soldiers were sort of shriveling down to the size of rats. Precisely. Um, yeah. So so check stuff about that out. And yeah, as always, um, learn from Spain. Keep that uh, flag of liberty flying. <laughs>